Kia ora from Victoria University of Wellington. Our podcast gives you the chance to catch up with our academics and guest speakers who lead thinking on the big questions facing society. Victoria University of Wellington. Capital thinking, globally minded. Well, thank you so much for inviting me to Creativity Week. Uh, it's my first trip to New Zealand. And as Bob said, I've just arrived this morning, so I haven't taken it all in yet. Uh, but so far, so good. And in fact, it's, it's amazing. Uh, <clears throat> in British Columbia, we have a tradition of acknowledging that we're on the lands of the indigenous peoples. And I'd like to do so today and thank them for allowing us to be here on their lands that they've called home for thousands of years. Um, and in many ways for me, this acknowledgement is respect for cultural diversity, uh, a cornerstone of creative coalitions. So speaking of culture, so I have an important question for all of you. Are Kiwis beer drinkers, wine drinkers, or both? Yes. <laughs> I have to say that I sometimes feel quite unpatriotic because I do buy and really enjoy New Zealand wines at home, even though we have decent wines now in British Columbia. So uh, it's, uh, I'm looking forward to uh, a little bit of wine tasting when I'm here. And when I told colleagues and friends that I was coming to Creativity Week in Wellington, they expressed curiosity and then they said, well, why aren't we doing this? So this is going to ripple across the globe. So great idea. So I always like to start when I talk to a new audience with a bit of an explanation around the, the lens through which I view the world. It seems kind of essential to me because then when you listen to me, you kind of process the ideas in a slightly different way because you understand that, that lens. And so I think like a designer because I am a designer. And specifically, I've grown to be what I call a strategic designer. As a landscape architect and urban designer, I have an education and experience behind me around the built environment. However, recently I think of myself more as somebody who actually practices this idea of strategic design. So what's that, you say? Well, strategic design is most definitely a collaborative discipline thinking process and it's for tackling the kinds of complex problems and systemic challenges that we all face today. Uh, and in contrast to many of the problem solving methods that have employ been employed in business and government uh, and other contexts, strategic design takes advantage of the designer's toolkit and mindset. Uh, so it supports group and idea, uh, sorry, group and individual idea generation. It absolutely demands an iterative uh, kind of a approach to identifying opportunities and delivering solutions. Some of you may have heard of design thinking because it's kind of floating around uh, and might wonder if that's the same as strategic design. 
For me, I think of design thinking as being a set of tools that sit under the umbrella of uh, the strategic design uh, methodology. And when I came to the business school and was asked to introduce design into the business curriculum, I thought, oh, yeah, I'm pretty agnostic as in terms of design processes, but I realized that I needed to find a, little, a simple way of actually describing for my, particularly for my undergraduate students, uh, what I meant when I said a design process. And so I kind of, I'm, I really like one-syllable words because I can, I can actually remember them. So ask, well, it's really our research. We question everything, we discover problems. Try is that whole testing, iteration, experimenting, prototyping. And do, and this is sort of why I don't like the design thinking terminology, because it makes you think that that's all you do, is you think. No, we do, we build out concepts, we evaluate, uh, and us try do. So the connection for me between creativity and strategic design is actually a strong one. The strategic design method balances what I call my critical voice and my creative voice. And I think one of the challenges of introducing design, especially into a business curriculum, is you have to make sure that the, student, the students don't lose their critical capacity. That is so important. And nothing irritates me more than when someone says, oh, design is just all that fluffy creative stuff. No, 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 no. Design is the rigor of knowing when to call forward your creative voice and when to silence your critical voice and vice versa. So I think that both of these kinds of ways of thinking are relevant to creative coalitions and to reimagining how the various sectors get along. So I'm, I'm hoping tonight that I don't just speak in generalities, but that each one of you gets a bit of a nudge uh, that opens up your talents as being creative disruptors and reimaginers in whatever kind of context you, you might, be, uh, might be in. So this is the plan for the next half hour or so. So first of all, thinking about the problem opportunity space, uh, identifying problems, the challenges of change. Secondly, thinking about, okay, how can creative coalitions actually respond to those problems and opportunities? And then finally, a little bit of a sense, a bit of a handful of the kind of skills that I think we need to learn to be great designers and builders of these creative uh, coalitions. I'm a big fan of this uh, Kaiser uh, quote, um, and it helps me. Do we have appreciative inquiry people in the audience? There we go, okay. So, so sometimes I, I struggle with not wanting to say the word problem because it might offend. So this, this kind of covers off the fact that, yep, yeah, it's okay to talk about problems because there are opportunities in workflows. So these aren't the only problems that we've got, but I kind of like thinking about the fact that sometimes I think we're lost and we're wandering and we need to find some direction. I think we're absolutely often afraid and really risk averse. 
And we're also a little bit illiterate in a certain sense. And so learning communication and learning to learn is important. So through my experiences in, in teaching and working in business and academia and, and in government, I've really seen myself and my colleagues tripped up by these kinds of barriers that uh, we often build ourselves. So lost and wandering. So I think this observation does apply across the various sectors and specifically in the C-suites, the CEO, the CFO, the COO, the CTO, and all the new chiefs that we are inventing. Uh, and I think it's a reflection of the complex and new systems that we're encountering daily. And if we don't have the capacity to identify, to question, to assess, and to move on, it can all become a little bit difficult not to wander a touch. We also lose our way because we've got an incredible number of roles that we juggle as, as people. We wear many hats. We're directors, we're executives, we're parents, friends, coaches, uh, weekend athletes. And we stitch these roles together. And now often we try to hold ourselves together with communities that are, are now electronic, whether it's texting or Facebook or Twitter or Snapchat or whatever. And so few of us are finding a community of interest down the street. That's a, a, a something that we, we don't find uh, as frequently as we may have. I don't think there's much that stymies our creativity uh, than, than fear. I think senior managers end up focusing on performance and, and risk aversion is in a sense hardwired into our reptilian brains. When we want to think long term with diverse interests and complex ecologies of ideas, Somehow our executive functions are forever bumping up against that old nerve-jangling survival instinct. And without training, they're overruled in what cognitive studies refer to as opposing domains. We're born curious, we're born open, we're born experimental. It's what has enabled us to survive. But our modern educational institutions, I'm pointing the finger at us, have tended to intervene and have rewarded complacency, compliance, rather than fostering that eagerness to actually ask questions, to test, and to really be on the edges of risk. And we tell each other that we honor creativity and we crave innovation, but we're constantly measured by rewarded for our ability to color within the lines. Our challenge is knowing when to listen to that creative voice, when to invite the critical voice in, and we need both to help us to manage and allow ourselves to risk. And then the final one that I'll talk about, this of course is not meant literally. Uh, we've come this far together. Uh, we are literate in many, many different ways. But literacy also implies a shared and accurate understanding. And here today, we tend to fall short. To go fast, go alone. 
To go far, go with others. This has been said in a thousand times in a thousand different ways and, and by people in hundreds of cultures. More than ever, it's important for us to learn how to work and play well with others. And that starts with the words we use in terms of getting along. Because many of our shared frustrations are systemic. They include deficits in our personal capacity, like resistance to change, and the lack of our capacity to talk about shared values. The discussion on climate change, a discussion on social injustice, for example. So managing systemic change requires a capacity to ask good questions, communicate with each other, and acknowledging the languages that we need to understand. So coming back to those three barriers, aimlessness, fear, illiteracy, it's appropriate to contemplate their potential consequences. Being lost can undermine our confidence. Fear of change means missing all those opportunities. And illiteracy may mean that we may mismanage even those opportunities that we might notice and want to pursue. So there's a lot of learning that needs to happen to tackle these challenges, uh, which will require change. So why is it so tough for us to change? It's been interesting, we can drag out all the, um, the cliches around, oh, we've got a burning platform, we need a burning platform to change. Why waste a crisis? Be the change you see in the world, break down silos. But ultimately, change isn't getting any less challenging. But we have to be smarter about how we go about it. And I think the first step is being aware of why it's difficult. Um, now for the long term, uh, which is the Oxford Martin Commission on Future Generations, has identified one of its contributions, for me anyway, is to identify the reasons why change is, is so hard for us. So old 20th century institutions or even medieval institutions are poorly equipped for what we need to be doing now suffering from legitimacy, authority, and effectiveness deficits. Hmm, which institutions could those be describing? Electoral cycles, media pressures, company reporting timetables, and just-in-time systems encourage short-termism, and we struggle with that. Limited opportunities for constructive engagement, and let's face it, a declining trust in politics undermines citizens' in involvement in policy. However, I think there's hope in some of our new online tools and, and methods. But nonetheless, that's an impediment to change. Issues are becoming more complex, and the evidence base can be somewhat uncertain, whilst the emphasis on consensus can sometimes totally undermine our capacity to actually act. And then the cultural biases around entrenched biases that shut many women and young people out of our critical conversations and activities, whilst cultural differences can also provide some barriers to change. So what are what is this idea of a creative co coalition? So again, uh, now for the long term, makes this pretty simple but powerful definition around prompting deeper change, learn, real emphasis on learn, and, and practical action.
So what are the characteristics of the of a coalition? Well, they have certain purposes. Some are advocacy, policy development, multi-sectoral collaboration, different structures, and certainly different scales. So we've got global multilateral coalitions like the World Bank, uh, United Nations, OECD. Uh, we have regional coalitions. Um, in my last year in government, I was involved with something called the Pacific Coast Collaborative. Uh, our former Premier of British Columbia, Gordon Campbell, used his persuasive powers to actually get together uh, the governors of California, Oregon, Washington, and Alaska. So we had two celebrity governors to manage, Arnold Schwarzenegger and celebrity question mark Sarah Palin. Uh, but it was really a fascinating process of getting these jurisdictions to collaborate on issues that don't know political boundaries. Ocean health. I mean, marine debris and invasive species do not stop at the 49th parallel. So how does that collaborative actually operate? And so it was really a fascinating process of getting it up and running and it's still going. It's about building relationships and educating about the concept of thinking regionally. I mean, you have a, um, a, a wonderful country that you can kind of more or less wrap your arms around. In Canada, we can't do that. Actually, it's way easier to kind of understand a north-south kind of regional uh, connection. So, so then, if those are coalitions, what makes a coalition creative? And I guess for, for me, it's a little bit of a coalition that's actually starting to think like a designer. That's balancing critical and creative thinking, really understands that most frequently we are trying to solve the wrong problem because we haven't unpacked it and thought it through in a way that we maybe could or should that there's a lot of prototyping, there's a lot of action and reflection, uh, there's iteration, there's visual thinking, and of course there's collaboration. And then there's some basics, effective governance and decision making, distributed leadership, big data, thick data, and the cultivation and engagement, of course, of, of champions. That's all fine and well, but how can creative coalitions be effective in solving our problems? Well, for me, it's because I think they bridge gaps. And they bridge a whole bunch of different kinds of gaps, communication and literacy gaps. So often, formal kinds of communication mechanisms are missing between the generators of knowledge and in often our university researchers and public servants who are thirsty for the information to provide evidence-based policy. And then there's theory practice gaps. Access to information is critical, as is the confidence in that information in terms of its usefulness and its capacity uh, to be used. How is, this is to the business uh, professors, how is theoretical business research translated to be understood and used by business? It was a fascinating um, social science and humanities Humanities Research Council study in Canada a couple of years ago that tested that and you know, most businesses do not use business research because they don't 
they are not able to access it. Cultural gaps, obviously different sectors have different cultures and languages, how do you bridge them? Governance and resource gaps, and of course knowledge mobilization gaps. So my idea is that it takes learning to, to, be, to become uh, someone who can think about design and build the creative coalition. So I've got a handful of ideas here that I want to test out on you. Um, the first is that I think that creative coalition designers are value surfacers. People have to feel respected in order to be comfortable with change. And one of the best ways to feel respected is to be listened to carefully and with absolutely full attention. This is an amazingly challenging skill for us to actually learn and, and practice. My experience has been whenever I've been in a leadership position and things go off track during a change process, it's because I've forgotten to both listen carefully and communicate consistently. And I've certainly found that even the most negative or resistant person to some kind of change will provide an incredibly useful insight that can move an idea ahead. So a good thinking strategy is to listen, not talk. It's also, I think, incredibly important to be clear about your own values, you know, what's the core of your being, but also to be able to work with colleagues to surface values. So when I went into the Ministry of Advanced Education, my very first executive meeting, I said, so what are the values of the ministry? Can, can you guys list them? Knowing that there's no way they could unless they had the service plan at their bedside table and memorized it because there's like 15 values. Well, how are you going to use 15 values? So we actually focused on respect valuing and honoring uh, our co-workers and then added learning and integrity and balance and, and, and excellence. But this, this idea that creative coalition designers are about not, not just servicing the values but using them, using them to guide decision making in business, in leadership, um, on, on projects. Context. I remember that I really began to enjoy being a university professor when I joined the Senate of UBC. Because it woke me up to the fact that you know, I was in this little, I had a joint appointment between this little landscape architecture program and this little school of architecture. And all of a sudden, I was in this room with the diversity of the university, which as a young assistant professor, you, you don't experience. So I, getting involved with that range made me think about context. And when I became dean, I realized that when I sat at the dean's table, I actually was sitting there as a senior leader of the university. And I should take off my faculty of land and food systems hat and have my context of UBC hat on. So a really important part, I think, about being a creative coalition designer is that you're all over context. You're out there, you're pushing ideas, but if we forget about context, whoosh, not good. And so I think this really is an applied skill 
that is important to coalition building. Culture. So I've led several transformations um, and processes that are really, when I think about them, they've grown through some informal and small creative coalitions. How am I doing time-wise? Ten more minutes? That's perfect. Thank you. So when the phone rang, offering me the opportunity to be the deputy of advanced education, I was reminded again of my interest in context. So here was a big chance. I could look at the whole public post-secondary system in British Columbia and research and innovation. And so UBC was just one part of that, but it was a huge cultural change. The ministry had about 220 folks in it, and I could only find 10 who had any experience in the post-secondary sector. So we have a context problem here in terms of understanding what's the connection, what does the ministry really do? I think there was a bit of a sense that we were sort of like parents and we would write these checks to all the universities and colleges and just that's done. And I kept saying, um, there's all these people called students who are actually our constituency. And so it was really interesting to to be in a different culture and one that was, well, you know how flat we are culturally as generally in academic institutions. Government, not so much. People would say to me, Maura, you're going to be so busy, you're going to have so many emails. Are you kidding? I had four assistant deputy ministers who reported to me. Everybody else was scared stiff until I kind of opened the door and said, no, I'm not that kind of deputy, I want to hear from you. And then my emails increased. But I also had to change my thinking processes in the sense that they're in the need of translation. And this is also, I think, a cultural issue. So landscape architect, designer, is the dean of a faculty of agricultural sciences. So scientists. So I would, you know, I'd be drawing on the whiteboard and I'd be sketching and talking about ideas. And people would frequently express frustration because they thought that that discussion was a decision. It's not a decision. It's an exploration. So I had to consciously translate my thinking processes to be able to say, you know, I'm from a design culture and that's how we think. And I I'm not wanting to push my culture onto you. I just need you to understand that that's the process. And my husband, who's a governance counsel and lawyer, is fond of reminding me that there is no common sense for her around the boardroom table, around any table that we might sit at. We have to build common understanding. We might all be speaking English, but do we actually have the same kind of understanding for the kind of phrases we use? Has to be discussed. So this idea that a creative coalition we have to be sensitive to culture, recognizing the commonalities that our, our various sectors share and, and our differences. And that we have to get used to stepping sometimes outside of those. Ambiguity and contradictions, wow. So one of my big learning, you know, so here I am, I come from government, I come into a business school, and I, I teach um, a, a course that's called Design Methods for Business Innovation. 
And I realized that these business students are not comfortable with ambiguity. We have managed in, at Sauter in the first two or three years of their education to get them to a point where they can barely think for themselves. So, uh, Moral, what do I do to please you? You know, they don't say that specifically. But, and, and you know, how many words is this? And what font? And nah, nah, nah. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You've got a client. You've got a business who's your client. What did they need? So very interesting shifting. And when I was dean, same thing, the different challenges that come from our often lack of comfort with ambiguity. So it doesn't scare creative coalition designers not to know. They don't always know. Have to, that's important. And then the final of the handful is really coming back to learning, continuous learning. And I was really reminded of this when I think I was in my mid-50s and I, I, I went to school to learn how to ride a motorcycle. I'd, I'd ridden a little 49cc, I was moving up to a 200cc, and of course I over-intellectualized everything about, about everything. And so it really reminded me about what it was like to be a learner. And then I went to the best day I have spent at a conference, probably my whole life. I'm a bad conference goer. So I went to a conference put on by Thomas Friedman, you know, the world is flat, the New York Times colonist, called The World of Work. Subtitle, where are our children going to get jobs over the next little while? Fantastic lineup. I mean, you've got to love journalists sometimes. He clearly had pre-interviewed everybody and there was no duds. Have you ever been to a day of a conference where there's no duds? I hadn't. So he interviewed Laszlo Bach, who just stepped down as the VP people of Google. At the time, and this would have been 2014, Google got 11,000 applicants a day worldwide. So Friedman says to Bach, so who are you hiring? You know, what, what kind of skill set do you need? His first comment was, I hire continuous learners. And I thought to myself, at Sauter, do we, do we teach continuous learning? I, I don't know. I mean, at UBC, I mean, we, yeah, we have continuing studies, but do we actually embed that concept? And then do we as faculty members, are we continuous learners? I'm not sure. Interestingly enough, you know what his second comment was in terms of who he hires? Comfort with ambiguity. Doesn't want somebody who's kind of always going, well, could you, exp could, you, could you explain what you want me to do a little more clearly? No, I'm not interested in that. So creative coalition designers are continuous learners. So where are we going to learn these kind of skills? I mean, ideally, they're embedded all across the university. And they probably are in pockets. So at UBC, the D Studio is a place where I try to, through the process of connecting third and fourth year BCom students with 
startup CEOs with mature businesses. And I say to the businesses, what's keeping you awake at night? Will you now come and co-create a design brief with the student team and work on that with us? And hopefully the skills are come through. And then we have a new Masters of Public Policy and Global Affairs, and I've tried to embed a strategic design skill set as they tackle their global policy projects. We have a team working on uh, financial inclusion in uh, the northeastern states of India. They leave uh, for three weeks of field trip, uh, field work rather, in a couple of weeks. We have a team working in uh, Indonesia on the haze issue, and we have a team working uh, on some of the sustainable development goals that relate to indigenous peoples and, and drinking water. So try to embed in that program uh, this, this set of skills. So often after I you know, write a talk like this, after I finish it I think, well, so what? You know, blah, blah, blah. Huh? So what are the useful takeaways? And so sometimes I think, well, maybe there needs to at least be a little bit of an action plan. Uh, so here's some suggestions for some steps. I'm really big on doing personal and, and team, what I call reimagination SWATs. You know, so SWATs, you know, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats, we do for organizations. It's kind of an interesting process to do it on yourself. And especially if you're thinking about your capacity to be um, involved in a creative coalition. So how do you map your strengths and weaknesses and identifying them and then, and then I love the one that says, well, what knowledge do I possess, but what skills am I missing? And especially for students, this is a fantastic opportunity because then the team does a SWOT. And then they negotiate and say to each other, well, actually, you know, I'm, I'm not really ever in a leadership position in a team. I, it's not my strength, but I, I think I need to do it. Can I do it this time? Or I'm scared to death of Excel spreadsheets. I can't do accounting, but I know I need to, so can I be that person? So in terms of, of the creative coalition idea, this sense of being able to really understand your capacity for imagination. The second one is to just borrow a little bit from one of the design techniques, which you probably have all done it and not called it assumption dumption. The concept is really that you say to often the team, once you're starting to unpack a problem, you say, well, what are your assumptions about this problem? So uh, an example that I like to use was working with the Ministry of Health in British Columbia, the senior executive, and I said, well, what, what does the public think about, what are their assumptions about the Ministry of Health? So the strongest one that came up was, well, the public thinks that government's going to look after them in their old age. Whoa, that's a false assumption. You know, when I was in government, by 2017, 
we were looking at what healthcare costs were and thought, well, there won't be any money for the Ministry of Advanced Education by 2017 because it's going to all be eaten up by health. So then what that does, it allows you as a, as a team to really break down unstated beliefs, uh, to develop shared understanding, to explore behind the problem. But it's also a creative exercise because then you can flip your assumptions. So if you flip that Ministry of Health assumption and you say, well actually, the citizenry knows in kindergarten that they have to look after themselves because government will not be. That changes the picture. That changes what we do. It, it changes some of our policy perspectives. So it's just an example of as one is starting to build or in a creative coalition to be able to test out assumptions uh, in, in, that, in that fashion. You know, these things, sometimes I think, we think that it's a volunteer sport to do these things. No, oh, it's this kind of thing you do on the side of your desk. It's not a volunteer sport. You have to make time for reimagining. You have to be thinking about how do I do this? And one of the things that amazes me about our institutions is that we just don't seem to get what I call keep, drop, and create. You can't keep creating if you don't drop something. And this is incredibly hard to do. I don't know whether I'm proud of this, but one of my claims to fame at UBC is that I axed the home economics program, which was on one floor of the buildings that I uh, was responsible for in favor of our very successful wine research center. <laughs> but, you know, it was basically down to, really, we've got ironing boards and stoves? Mm, maybe not. But this whole concept of we can't keep doing everything. So it's the same for you and your worlds. Focus, focus, focus. You want to do a creative coalition. It, it, it needs time. And reimagining needs time. And the takeaway, my last slide. So think about your own opportunity space. I mean, your creative coalition might be your family. You think of it as a creative coalition. Like, how, do, how does it work? How, does it in, how do you engage each other? You know, what are the, what are, how, how do you think about that opportunity? And then I, I invite you to experiment with Ask, Try, Do. I think, oh, have we actually done our research on something that we're thinking about doing as a family? Actually, you know, we just jump into things. Whereas you could actually ask a bunch of questions and maybe come up with a, an interesting result. And then finally, reflect and learn. So I think the bottom line for me around how to reimagine, and I realize I was doing this and thinking, so do I come up with a list of ideas about how to reimagine government, academia, and business? I, you know, I could do that, but I decided that's not this lecture. I wanted to give more of the, the, the ways of thinking about how that reimagination might happen. Thank you.
stay up to date with the latest cutting-edge research from Victoria University of Wellington, subscribe now through iTunes, Stitcher or your favourite podcast provider. Thanks to Te Koki New Zealand School of Music alumni Kenyon Shanky and Stephen Patton for the use of their music. Victoria University of Wellington. Capital thinking, globally minded.